Greetings, Sherwood from Beaverton. It's good to see you guys. Uh, last time I had the privilege of being with you, it was uh, about a year and a half ago, and you guys were in the movie theater. Uh, it was good to be with you then, and I'm excited to be back with you now. Grateful for your prayer and support of God's continuing work of uh, growing larger by staying smaller and multiplying churches uh, in in Beaver, or, well, in Portland. And so uh, it's been awesome to see God uh, raise up a local church in Beaverton and be a part of that story. It's awesome. So thanks for being a part of that through your prayer and through uh, financially supporting that. It's been awesome to see what God's done and is doing. So um, want to just let you know if you're new here this morning, we are collectively, all Colossae congregations are working through what we're calling a vision series. Vision's less about our ideas of goals or strategy and really just about what God calls us to step into in obedience to him. And in that space, we are trusting that God transforms us to become more like him and to be used in the lives of people. And so uh, it's uh, in this series where we're taking a look through the lens of being rooted in the gospel at these different spaces of hospitality and community, generosity, kingdom collaboration, celebration, and I think that's all of them. Uh, we, we're looking at stepping into each one of those things more intentionally and trustingly in uh, what Christ calls us to be. Uh, and so <clears throat> this morning, I want to talk to you about celebration. And when I do, I want to just throw up a definition here, just so that way you have some understanding of what it is that I, I hope to get to. Um, celebration is the active remembering, all right? So that's, there's something active in it. It's a remembering of a reality in which we joyfully participate and which is given power to shape our experience. And so when my daughter turns 11 here in a couple of weeks, we will actively remember the gift of her birth and we will recognize we all joyfully participate in the reality of her being as parents and siblings and all that. Uh, and we give her power to shape the moment, right? We're, we're celebrating in that moment uh, a reality. And so we're going to talk about this idea of celebration today. Uh, and in order to get there, I'm going to take us through kind of a winding path, okay? Um, it may not make sense until the end, so stay with me. Um, I think given the fact that memes are the highest discourse of, um, our high, highest level of discourse in our society, I thought we'd start there. Um, so uh, has anybody seen these guys, these aliens before? Nathan Pyle's Strange Planet. So we have a couple of aliens here um, who are talking. Um, and what he does is he just shares normal experiences but helps us see maybe how odd they actually are. Um, shall we continue this series? Ah, it continued autonomously, the other alien says. This technology exploits our apathy. We lack the will to stop it. Our restraint has been overcome, yet I am not sad. I'll explode more grains. I'll stop it while you do. Right? That's explode more grains. Right? I, lo I love these two little aliens that Nathan draws because they help us see what is typically, see the strangest of what we typically view as familiar. And so I want to start with that idea, that to, to, to play off of uh, our own cultural moment, to imagine, if we will, that we are looking at our culture through the lens of these aliens, 
As, imagine you were like this alien sociologist, somebody who studied society and culture, or an anthropologist, somebody who studies people. And, and imagine you came to our cultural moment with this alien sociologist lens to try to describe what you see valued and practiced in this culture. And so I just want to take you on an alien sociologist journey, okay? Seems like a good place to start a sermon on church vision, right? So go with me. Uh, You are this alien sociologist, and you go to one of our culture's most sacred religious sites. Every day, thousands make their pilgrimage to this site. There's a wealth of parking at the site because it's at the edge of a suburban sprawl, and pilgrims make their way inside, and as they do, there is an architectural code to this place that communicates to all faith adherents everywhere, no matter what city they're in, that they, uh, they belong. It's, it's the same architectural code everywhere. Uh, the interior is expansive, and it makes room for a network of different religious communities. The seekers are greeted by a kind of map to give them orientation for their journey. The faithful are ushered into this immersive space that causes you to forget any exterior reality. Time ceases to exist. You are fully immersed now in this place where you can contemplate your journey. Each chapel has a a three-dimensional set of icons for you to imagine the good life embodied perhaps on you And as you go through these different chapels, you move, whether you're wandering the site or intentionally seeking something, but when you find that holy object, the pilgrims proceed to the altar on which the consummation of worship is performed, because it is a religion of transaction. And so the people make an exchange for a sense of communion and belonging And having made the proper sacrifice, the adherents can leave with a reward and a sense of peace and confidence ready to face the perils of the outside world. By now, if you have not yet guessed, we're describing the mall, right? (laughs) Just a regular day at the mall in American society. And if we can step back and view it this way, whether you're in South Philly, Southern California, or the west side of Portland, it's all the same. It's a, it's a practice of seeking ecstasy. It is a way of describing, uh, perhaps in a strange way, what has become very familiar to us. And so I, I want to just kind of highlight some of the ways our own cultural practices form us and shape us. And so we put on the alien sociology hat, right? And we think about how ridiculous it is to explode grains, Right? Let's think a little bit about how ridiculous is it that I seek something, uh, some kind of ecstasy by what I pay, right? Okay, so I borrow all this idea from this guy who's a philosophy professor. He says this description is meant for us to recognize the charged religious nature of cultural institutions, Um, He also, this guy named James K.A. Smith, he goes on and he says, when we look at our cultural practices this way, we can see that the institutions we participate in are forming us and forming us towards particular desires. So let me sum sum all that up into this one statement. Why am I getting at this? I'm trying to say that what we practice regularly has power to shape what we want and who we become. What we practice shapes what we want 
and it actually has power to shape who we become because nothing is neutral. Nothing is without consequence. All of our practices move our desires in a particular, particular direction. And so I want to root this conversation in celebration in the text of Deuteronomy 6. If you have a Bible, you can turn it there. So we shift from aliens to Deuteronomy 6 uh, for you this morning. I feel like that's a pretty typical church Sunday. Uh, okay, so if you're new to the Bible story, let me just bring you up to speed on where we're at in the story. Uh, the, the creator God has made humanity in his image on page one, and he's made humans to rule, and he's delegated his authority uh, to rule and, and cultivate culture and, and society and the land and all these things, and, and it's all supposed to happen in a context of trust. But instead, humans rebelled against God, and it leads to this downward spiral where the nations move away from Yahweh, the creator God, and embrace the other gods, and they become violent and oppressive and arrogant. And Yahweh, in in light of this, chooses one family to bear the responsibility of restoring the whole world. And through this family, there's this promise that an offspring will will come about that will bless all the nations and restore the world. But it's a messed up family, and so not only do they bear grace to the world, they also receive grace, and they become this kind of case study on what it looks like to be human and to be restored by God. And so this first book in the Bible ends with this family, this family of Abraham as slaves in Egypt. And so the next book picks up the story. Well, actually, they're just in Egypt. The next book, Exodus, picks up and they become slaves in Egypt. And, and it tells the story of how God sets his family free so they can worship him and be his people. And the rest of that story in the first five books of the Bible is about a road trip that takes about 40 years for these people to get to the land of God's promise. And it takes so long because the people along the way refuse to trust God and they rebel and they continue to reject the God who saved them. And so the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' final sermon to the generation of people who are about to take possession of this land that God has promised them. It would be this place where he would be present with his people. And so it's in this In this place where the generation who grumbled and rebelled has died off, and the next generation, their kids, are about to take the land, and God has a message for them. And this is what he says through Moses, who says, Hear, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is the famous Shema, right? Shema, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. And it's called the Shema because the first word is Shema. It means to hear, right? It actually means to listen in order to obey. There's no Hebrew word for just listen in terms of getting audio, but it is about response. It's what every parent wants their kid to do, right? Don't just listen to me. Listen and obey, right? It's what none of us do when the flight attendant comes up and says, uh, right, uh, there's a flotation device under your seat, and you're like, yeah, 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 I've been there all before, which is really funny, because it's the one moment where somebody's telling you, if you have this information, it might save your life, right, and you're like, I, I don't need that information. I, lo- I love that about us. We're pretty funny that way. My theory is like, yeah, because we're dead, right, um, if this thing goes down, but... Um, 
I don't need a flotation device. The flotation device is going to be wearing me for protection. So anyway, um, where was I going with that? The reason, yeah, that's right. So what the Shema is saying is the reason you're alive, the whole reason you're here is to be loved by this God and to offer love in response. Your highest priority as a human is to love the Lord your God because he has loved you. And so the main desire for humans that we are created to cultivate and protect and live for is the love of God. And then Moses goes on and he says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, every posture of life is to be saturated by what God discloses about who he is and what he's done. In other words, our lives are to be saturated by his word. How do I love God? I need to be saturated with what he discloses about who he is so I can know him and respond to his love. But Moses also knows that there's dangers in the context of moving the people into the land, just like the wilderness. And so on one hand, while we're to love God as a response to his love and saturate our lives with what he communicates to us, there's also very real dangers that pull us away from that. And so this is what he gets at. He offers three warnings. The first is he warns us of the danger of forgetting God because of affluence. He says this, when Yahweh your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great food and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget who brought you out of the land, out of the house of slavery. It is Yahweh your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. In other words, he says, when you experience abundance, when you experience much, when you have affluence that didn't come by your merit, but came as a work of God's grace, don't forget. Don't abandon him because you think you have what you need by simply just having what makes you comfortable. The next danger is the danger of abandoning God because of idolatry. And he goes on in verse 14 and says, You shall not go after the other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For Yahweh, your God, is in your, in your midst, is a jealous God. In other words, you're going into a context where people have other loyalties. And the loyalties of the nations around you are going to become this snare for you if you are not careful. And sure enough, we know the story. They did. And, and, and because of these other loyalties, right, if we give in to those loyalties, try to hedge our bets, and try to secure ourselves by being loyal to the gods of the people around us, we will becoming head-to-head with the jealousy of God. The jealousy of God is appropriate, like any wife is appropriately jealous for the affection of her husband or husband for his wife, vice versa. No one else should get to have affection and loyalty from that person because there's a mutually exclusive 
covenant relationship they've entered into that said, I will forsake all others. And it's important for us to recognize that Yahweh God, the creator God, is in an exclusive covenant relationship with his people because he alone is God. And then there's this danger of doubting God because of hardship. So the danger of forgetting God because of affluence, danger of abandoning God because of idolatry, and then the danger of doubting God because of hardship. It says in verse 16, you shall not put Yahweh your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. Now, what he's referring to is the part of the story in the book of Numbers where the people were hungry and they were thirsty and they're out in the desert and they go, God doesn't care about us. He wants to kill us. The whole reason he saved us from Pharaoh was so he could kill us in the desert. In other words, I'm experiencing need. I'm not experiencing comfort. I'm experiencing hardship. And therefore, God's character must not be trustworthy. And so he says, don't be like that. When you experience challenges, don't be like you were back there. Remember that God is good. Don't put him to the test. Trust his presence. And so, why is this important? Since you are not ancient Israelites, and I don't think you're about to inherit any land that I know of that has been promised to you, what's the point? Well, somebody said, uh, and I can't remember who it was a long time ago, that Israelites are like everyone else, only more so. Um, and, And the point is, in the story of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, you get a story of humans in a covenant relationship with God the way that relationship is meant to work, where it breaks down, and what's required to set it right. And what Moses is showing us is that there's not just an Israelite problem, but a human problem, a human tendency to drift away from God, to drift away from Him in the context of our affluence or idolatry or hardship and many other things. These dangers are have a powerful effect on the human heart. And so we live in a culture that tells us a different story than the story of redemption in Jesus. And and this is an important text for the church today because it's a warning about forgetting our own story, forgetting where we come from. It's a warning about the pull of contentment in what we own or in the pull of the gods of our culture or in the challenge of difficulty to dilute our faith and re-narrate the story we believe and live. And so the the rhythms of our day-to-day life actually have an effect on how we understand ourselves and the story we're a part of. They tell us a story. They, They tell us the story that if we're comfortable, then we will be content. That's the danger of affluence. They tell us a story that if we give our loyalty to what others around us chase, then we will be secure. This is the danger of idolatry. Tell us the story that if we look out for ourselves, because no one else will, that's the danger of hardship. And let's be honest, these cultural stories are told in the shows we binge and in the habits we embrace and what we consume to to soothe our anxiety. And what the heart of Moses is in this context is that Israel must not forget. This idea of not forgetting is repeated over and over in Deuteronomy. I'll just list three. In Deuteronomy 4.9, Moses says, Only take care and keep your soul, keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen. 
Deuteronomy 4.23, take care lest you forget the covenant of Yahweh. On one hand, don't forget what you've seen God do. Don't forget what you've heard God promise. And then in Deuteronomy 8.11, take care lest you forget Yahweh your God by not keeping his commandments. We forget when we don't remember what we've experienced from God. We forget when we don't remember what he's promised. And we forget when we allow a gap to grow between what we hear and when we obey. The further the gap grows between what God says and our obedience, the longer there's a lag time between those two, the more we forget who God is and what he's done. When we allow that gap to increase between hearing and obeying, there's a crevasse of forgetfulness that opens up in our minds and hearts. This is what Deuteronomy is saying. And so what does it look like to remember? If forgetting is the problem, then remembering seems to be a very important answer or solution, if you will. And we call that act of remembering celebration. Remember our definition at the beginning. It's that active remembering of a reality in which we participate and we give power to shape our present. And so we engage the story of Jesus as participants, joyfully celebrating the reality of who God is and what he's done, owning the story of Jesus as if it's our own. So what does Moses say to the people? He says, you shall diligently keep the commandments of Yahweh your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. This is verse 17. How do we remember? He, Moses uses the word to keep, which is to watch or guard. You think back to the alien sitting on the couch. The, the technology has exploited our apathy. I love that. I love what there's... Like, this is so us and our Netflix saturation. And I love it. I love it, right? But we have to develop practices that keep it in check so that we're not just exploited by what we consume and how we consume. And so how do we actively remember? We keep. We keep our way before God. And we are aware of the ways in which our technology is trying to exploit our apathy. And we think, oh, just one more scroll, just one more check of Facebook, just one more time of looking at emails. And before long, we have become formed under the oppression of the constant plague of more. And so it requires diligence and attention and intentionality to keep our way. And this is what Moses says in verse 20. He says, when your son, when your child comes to you in time, says, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that Yahweh our God has commanded you? In other words, what is the meaning of all of this? Mom, dad, you believe this we go to this church, we set up chairs, we take down donuts, or I don't know, we set up donuts and take down chairs. One of those two. I took down a few donuts this morning, and I'm regretting it, all right? I'm going to be honest. We do this thing. You have these practices. I see you give regularly. What's up with that? What's the meaning of that? In other words, there's an assumption that there's a life that provokes questions, It is not the same as everyone else in your culture. It is different enough to provoke the question, what's the meaning of this? And here's the answer Moses says to give. 
Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and Yahweh showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his households before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to our fathers. And so the answer to the question is a story. The answer is a story. There's a way of life that provokes questions, but the answer is a story. Why? The story. Look at what God did. And now for us, we say to your kids, I was dead in my transgressions and sin. I was totally wrapped up in myself. I was wrapped up in fear. I was wrapped up in whatever it was. But God made us alive in Christ. He's turned my heart outward. It's not curved in on itself anymore. Now I can receive love and give love because I'm not just looking out for me. Because my, my soul has been fed by the presence of a generous and good God. And so the response is not, we do it just because we do it, okay? Just because we tell you. It's always a narrative of salvation. And when we lose the story, we lose the practices. And when we lose the practices, we lose the memory. And so how do we respond to this? How do we engage celebration? For ancient Israel, there were regular times of Sabbath, which was a time for rest, and regular times of worship, the festivals. So rest and worship were the rhythms that formed Israel's daily life. Over time, these festivals and Sabbaths actually became detestable to God. In the language of Yahweh, in Isaiah, they were detestable. He did not desire the practices because their hearts weren't in them. So there's nothing magic about the practice of rest and worship. But when our hearts are in it, there's something transformative about it. And in Jesus, who fulfills the Torah and gives his spirit, we're able to worship in spirit and truth. But being able to worship Jesus in spirit and truth doesn't negate the need to have a form or practices. And so what I want to offer you this morning by way of application is just two ways to celebrate. Two ways to celebrate who God is and what he's done. One personal practice and one communal practice. The first is the the personal practice of Sabbath. Sabbath just means to cease or to rest, to stop. And it was a defining mark for ancient Israel in their weekly life. Every uh, seventh day was this stop moment where they rested In fact, before any place in geography was labeled holy, time was said to be holy in Genesis 1, that God set apart or devoted time as a rest of deep satisfaction in what he had done. And there are two commands to Sabbath in the Old Testament, in the Torah in specific, and the first one is in Exodus 20, in the giving of the Ten Commandments. The first time, it's the why for Sabbath or for rest is rooted in creation. Because God rested on the seventh day. That's why we Sabbath. It it expresses the idea of God's complete work. It's an invitation to enter into resting in what he has done. In other words, it's a gospel invitation to stop striving to earn. Instead, rest in what's given. 
In fact, the humans said to be made on the sixth day, uh, and they, they symbolize the pinnacle of God's creative work, uh, their first full day of existence was a Sabbath rest. In other words, they learned to work from rest, not to work for rest. They didn't hit the ground of the garden running and God didn't say, hold the weekend as a carrot in front of them. They were made and they rejoiced and they rested. And in that context, they learn that time is actually marked by grace. Time is actually woven by grace. Rest is a gift, not an achievement. And the second reiteration of the command to Sabbath was grounded in the memory of God's saving actions. You were slaves, God says, but God set you free. In other words, um, we need to understand in a world that is constantly telling us you are what you do, you are what you produce, you are what you accomplish, you are what others think, you are what you possess. It's a narrative of soul-crushing, never-ending anxiety and work. Um, We fall prey to those stories, by the way. Sabbath is actually a way of resisting that narrative to the dangers that Moses spoke about. Sabbath resists the sense that we're in control and says you aren't a slave. You are not what you do and what you produce. You are an image bearer of God. And so Sabbath is an opportunity for us to practice resistance to the cultural stories that tell us you are what you do. Because we carve out a space where we don't perform and we don't accomplish, where we just rest in the reality that God doesn't need me to run the world. Because I'm going to wake up in the morning after I've rested and I'm still going to be on a flying space rock where everything works without me. Right? The sun's still going to come up. The emails will still be there. Right? It will be fine. That's what Sabbath teaches us. And so for the Christian, Sabbath is not a command to obey, but wisdom to follow. If Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath, then he is certainly the Lord who invites us to rest. Not in theory, but in relationship that is practiced. I don't know any relationship that doesn't have time and place involved. I'm not a husband if I'm not with my wife. Right? Uh, And so, or a father, if I'm never with my kids. And so, this is an invitation to a life rooted in grace, where we are not what we do, but we are who we are related to. And Sabbath reminds us that we're not slaves, but helps us resist. And it helps us resist the narratives of our culture. And I want to ask you to begin, if you've not already begun, to carve out some sort of Sabbath rhythm, a time that is not for productivity, but to remember you're not a slave and to give attention to God through play and through pray, prayer, okay? To play and to pray, those two things. Give attention and time and space to who God is and what he's done and to just have fun. Uh, some advice on that is to begin to avoid two things, avoid technology and avoid commerce. I've, I've never felt more rested as a result of just being on a screen, I've also never felt more rested by spending money. I don't know. That's maybe my narrative, but I would encourage you to just resist a couple of ways that you're narrated by our culture. Avoid those and instead embrace, seek after, aim for quiet, to share a meal, 
to give to others and to fill your soul. And if we live this way, with the Sabbath, you have to ask the question, what's going to die in me? What has to die in me if I will embrace this? You may not get ahead. And the need to prove and the need to be ahead of others, to be on par with the rest of your suburban landscape, may have to die. It may have, you may have to die to your independence. Which leads us to the second practice. And this is the, the last practice I'll offer this morning. It's the personal practice of Sabbath. This is one of the ways in which we can participate in celebration. And then there's a communal practice of gathering. And this is, this is another way we celebrate. The author of Hebrews says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day dawning near. It's another passage that roots us in a story that says, hold to the confession of hope. Consider others, stir them up. Don't neglect being together. Because guess what? Jesus has not invited us into a story of an individual plan of salvation, but has invited us into the formation of a new community, which means that we actually think it's more important to be together as a local church than for everybody to just get the information dispersed through teaching over a podcast. Because a podcast is not liturgical. There's no work for you in it. A podcast uh, can give you great information, but you'll never learn the awkward rhythms of community, of going and being with other awkward people (laughs) and being confronted with your own awkwardness. (laughs) uh, You'll never experience the joy of Eucharist together or the, the, the beauty of singing together. Um, and on and on we could go. The author of Hebrews says, don't neglect getting together. And I'm gonna, I'm not, my ego can't be boosted at all by saying this, but if you're here every week regularly, like, that, that's, that's really important, right? That you're not, not going to come and make me feel great. I won't be here again. But, uh, and it won't boost Rick's ego either, right? But it will build you up. And what will happen is you become more and more transformed into what you already are as you commit to being gathered together. I don't know any other thing that if you do it 1.5 times per month, you could say, yeah, that's like really regular in my life, right? Um, If I told you like, yeah, I'm an avid cyclist, and you're like, when would you go? I like three months ago. Um, You would say, nah, I think you're a dude on a bike, actually. Like, you're not probably an avid cyclist. I don't know. And so for us to move past that 1.5 times per month gathering to say it's going to be a commitment for me to not neglect gathering, I would encourage you with this. There's a reason why. And it's not just so that church can be full. It's so that you can be restoried every week. We gather to be restoried. It's a time where we're restoried around the Word of God and sacrament, where the whole morning has a design and flow that leads us to the table, this place that grounds us in a narrative of hope. Because our culture tells you a story all the time that you are here by chance and you're going nowhere unless you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and achieve something, and even then it can be taken. Whereas when we are restoried 
by Christ and his presence at the table, what ends up happening is you learn that the story didn't begin with you. It doesn't depend on you. You're just warmly invited in for your past to be reconciled, for your future to have direction, and for your present to have fullness because Jesus is with you. And so Jesus has saved us from sin, death, and the devil by exchanging himself in our place, confessing our sins from the cross and bearing the burden of sin there. And the table reminds us what has been done once and for all while drawing us toward what will one day be done. The nations will be drawn to one table. There will be one feast of great joy that will unify all. And the table draws us into a story that has a defining mark in the past. It it has hope for the future and perhaps most often forgotten real presence in the moment. Or the, the, the table draws us into a story that reminds us that Jesus is with us now. You are not a solo agent in your own story, but a character drawn into his story. And you are never alone, for Christ is with us by means of the Spirit. And so as we go to the table this morning, I want to offer to you simply this, this reality of celebrating in our own lives a story of God's grace resisting the narratives that I am somehow going to perform for God and gathering regularly, coming to the table to be reminded that I'm grounded in his work. And so as the Father sends the Son and the Father and Son send the Spirit and the triune God sends the church as the body of Christ into the world, you are invited this morning to nurture that calling and that identity that Christ has redeemed you and is with you and has sent you in the power of the Spirit. To nurture that reality by celebrating Christ's presence with us by receiving bread and wine. To be restoried by celebrating Christ and what he's done, what he will do, and that he's with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your mercy. We thank you for your presence. We thank you, Lord, that we are not at the mercy of whatever our culture around us practices. But you have offered us a way of being grounded in a story of hope. Help us, Lord, to step into that celebration personally and communally in a way in which we can meet you and be transformed. We pray over Sherwood and Beaverton and Tigard, Hillsborough and the east side that we would be congregations of deep and meaningful celebration that we would lead lives rooted in the story of who you are and what you have done, that our desires would be shaped by that reality, that we would become the people who image you to our world in ways that communicate your good news. In Jesus' name we pray.